New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The stories we tell ourselves about who we are, our childhood, our memories of the past, our life in the present, are like clothing we put on. These narratives provide us with endless hours of entertainment. Sometimes they're horror stories and sometimes comedies. But do these tales tell us who we truly are? Our guest today, Gangaji, says, for better and worse, our stories become the reference points for defining who we are, who we are with, and what it all means. So then, how do we separate ourselves from this narrative and uncover the truth of our lives? To help us discover ways to do this is our guest today, spiritual teacher Gangaji. Born in Texas and raised in Mississippi, Gangaji's search for fulfillment ended in India in 1990, when she met her spiritual teacher, Sri H.W.L. Punja, also known as Papaji. Himself a student of the renowned Sri Ramana Maharshi, now Gangaji teaches throughout the United States and in Europe, holds retreats and gatherings for spiritual seekers of all faiths. Her books include The Diamond in Your Pocket, Discovering Your True Radiance, You Are That, and Hidden Treasure, Uncovering the Truth in Your Life's Story. Join us for the next hour as we examine how we create stories about ourselves that separate us from the treasure that is who we truly are with our guest, Gangaji. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Gangaji, welcome. Oh, thank you. So good to be here. It's good to have you here. Well, let's talk about stories. <laughs> what do you mean when you say our stories define us? Well, it seems from the moment that we first become aware that we're conscious, some moment, I, I can't recall the specific moment, but I recall just this burst of, I am, I am me. <laughs> we begin searching for, for what that means. Who am I? We are really searching for for something that will reflect back to us this wonder at being. And we're human beings, and one of the gifts of being a human being is that we have language. And an outgrowth of having language is this extraordinary power to construct and tell and retell and reconstruct stories. So in many ways, it's the very fabric of, of being a human being. 
And it seems to me that, that it is in that fabric that we search for ourselves. We get our primary stories, I suppose, well, maybe primary from our genetics. So there's a physical story, and there's a, a, a story that we get from our family, a story when we are told and realize we're a particular gender and what that means, or we're from a particular nation. And then, of course, just the stories we get from friends and advertising and movies and other stories we read or hear about. And it becomes this mosaic of narratives. And we extract from that a definition of who I am. I'm a good person. I'm a hero. I'm a failure. I've, I've made it. I haven't made it. And, of course, that changes different different periods. And you point out in your book that... We think, well, like when we think of our story as when we're growing up, mm-hmm. we have this story about growing up and how it was for us and our relationship with our siblings or our parents or our friends or whatever. And that that story, if we really look at it as we get older, that story keeps evolving and changing. <laughs> it's, it's not a constant, well, these are the facts of my life, right? Oh, yes. And even those facts, you know. I'm not so sure they're factual. I mean, I have conversations with my brother or sister. We have such different experiences of the same event. And they remember things that I'm certain, well, certainly in my narrative, they didn't exist. And and likewise, I remember things that they have no recollection of. And, and I, I'm sure we all forget many things, but we also reconstruct and reform Right, exactly, exactly. So I, I know that you have, a, I think we've all felt this in, in at some point or another, in our spiritual attainment, if we just refine our stories enough, if we just um, add to them just enough or make better choices and we can make a better story and that's the whole point of it. Well, I, I do think that that's the beginning point, and that is what gets uh, many of us into a spiritual search or a spiritual inquiry, is that we realize something's not right. <laughs> I, I don't know that if you're totally satisfied with your story and your, your sense of yourself that you even look outside that for anything. But for those of us who felt something or feel something is not right or not in place, we just based on our instinct as humans and our experience and education as storytellers, naturally then try to just tell a better story. And I applaud that. I think it's very wise and useful to tell a better story. It's just not the end of the spiritual search. In fact, you can tell a wonderful story and you can live a wonderful story, but until you have actually tasted the truth that is free of the story. There's still some sense of lack or missing something or maybe indefinable yearning. Mm -hmm. In your book, you use one particular teaching story and you weave that story throughout the book. And maybe you can say something about that teaching story for us right now. Well, it's a story that my teacher, Papaji, would tell. And it's about a woman who finds herself widowed. And prior to her losing her husband, she lived a life of bounty, plenty, uh, and in many ways an unconscious life of plenty. 
And then it was all lost, a reversal of fortune. Of course, we can all relate to this (laughs) in many different ways, many levels. But for her, it was a total disaster. She ended up having to take her children out of school, and they had to beg. And and finally, she was on the brink of, of not having enough just for pure survival when a stranger appeared at her door and was shocked to see the condition she was living in because he was a stranger to her, but he had known her husband. And her husband, as a a business colleague, had confided in him that throughout the years he had been stashing a treasure or means to take care of his family in case anything happened to him. He had neglected to tell his wife because he felt it was his job as the provider, and of course he didn't foresee his sudden death. So the stranger was just appalled. Why are you living in poverty? There is plenty. And and she, the widow, was then appalled that he would say that to her because she was obviously destitute, and how dare he come in here and say she has plenty. And, And he kept saying, no, you don't understand. Your husband left you enough. And she said, no, you don't understand. My husband left me nothing. We are destitute. We are on the brink of starvation. And he said... There is, under the floorboards of your kitchen, a treasure. And she at first just denied it. She was so attached to her experience of her reality that she really could not let this in. And then one of her younger children said, well, show us where it is. And they allowed him to come in, and he lifted the floorboards of the kitchen floor, and there was the bounty that the husband had laid. And, of course, there was much overjoicing. The point that Papaji was always making with the story is that that's true for each of us. That under the foundation of who we think we are, there is the richness of the truth of who we are. And if we are overly fixated or attached to the the outlines of who we think we are, the foundation of our story, the, the floorboards of this widow's kitchen, we don't even look to see what's under that. We don't even consider there's a reality under that. And when we are willing to actually recognize the floorboards and look under them, there is a great surprise awaiting everyone. It's a very good surprise. That's beautiful. In in that story, what struck struck me was um, when the invitation came, or when the, he said, "No, it's it's real." That way that the the family just would block that information and say, "No," they just wouldn't invite in that possibility. So, talk about that. Well, I I remember reading years ago when it was I think in the nineteen early 1960s, some uh, Japanese fighters were found in some remote island in the Philippines, and they still thought the war was going on. And these people approached them and said, the war is over. The war has been over for some time now. And it was unbelievable to them, because they had given their lives to, to fighting this war, and to have someone come in and say, it's over, was at first rejected. Because their reality was, 
No, I'm fighting a war. That's what's happening. And so the war is real. And this, this is the same thing in this teaching story, and it's the same thing in many of our lives. We, we know, or, or maybe we're not even aware of, the stories that we're telling. We, we may even just think that's a description of reality. But we don't consider that it's not the absolute truth. And we don't consider that it's limited. And it is. There's much more. It's a, exactly. I'd like to talk about the, the nature of inquiry, because you really emphasize that in your book and in your teachings. And um, there is a way of inquiry that is is direct and then a way that maybe is not so direct. Can you kind of say something? Yes, well, inquiry comes, the way I'm using it really comes from Ramana Maharshi through my teacher to me. And the, perhaps the most famous question of spiritual inquiry is, who am I? And that turns the attention back to this I. And in many ways, I is the floorboards <laughs> of the, the story, because usually we spend our lives attaching stories to this I sense. And the invitation of inquiry is to actually turn attention to that and, and discover what is the substance of this I that is universally used. In my teaching and working with people, I have met many people who have taken this inquiry, who am I, and then uh, enfolded it into their story, their spiritual story, and it becomes uh, just another character in their story. It gets co-opted. It gets co-opted. I'm here with Gangaji. She's the author of Hidden Treasure, Uncovering the Truth of Your Life Story. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with spiritual teacher Ganga G. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, find out where she's maybe appearing and doing retreats and talks. You can go to her website, gangaji.org, and you spell that G-A-N-G-A-J-I, gangaji.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Gangaji, we were talking about how the who am I question, the, the really very famous spiritual question, how some of us then take that question and enfold it into our story. So say more about that. Well, when we do that, and it's perhaps natural to do that, we're 
as storytellers and as human beings, but it the question itself loses its power to to reveal the limitlessness of oneself. And so I, I, Papaji always asked me to speak directly and in the vernacular of the people I'm speaking to in a modern vernacular, and he also asked me to to share my experience rather than to teach people to do a certain thing. And I recognize for myself that I would take this question, who am I, and it was dry for me and, and almost sterile, and it was a thing that I would do. Who am I? And, and I could have beautiful experiences as the result, but it was still separate from my life in another moment when I wasn't asking that question. And I realized I wanted to offer people a direct way of inquiry so that it can be realized that the truth of who we are is never separate from who we are or from any story that we're telling. And given that our particular subculture, psycho-spiritual seeking subculture, is very emotionally referenced, it seemed like to me that's the place for investigation. And so I really uh, ask people to suspend for a moment their, their story of who they are. For instance, if the story is, I've always been vic- victimized by my mother's behavior when I was young, I hope I can overcome this someday. Just for a moment to recognize that a- as a narrative and suspend it. You can't really suspend it until you recognize it. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to recognize the story we're telling. And then to recognize even deeper than that, what is the emotion that fuels that story, that keeps that story uh, in its loop of repetition? Recently they've done some studies at Harvard that have shown some brain studies and scans, that it is actually an emotion that appears first, and then a thought attaches to that emotion. So for me, it was a, a more immediate experience to, to not follow the thought of what was the cause of a particular feeling or emotion, but just to directly experience that emotion, even maybe beginning with, what is this? What is this I'm experiencing? What is this I'm feeling? And so are you saying, like, not, not to go into, okay, why am I feeling this emotion? Mm-hmm. Because that's usually the next question that we ask. We, yes. we feel some strong something, and, and the thought comes, oh, my mother did this, mm-hmm. and then why did she do that? And we, that's where we start running off with it. Right? Yes, thank you, Jessie. That's really an essential point, that this is not analyzing the story, and it's not a question of why, as legitimate as it may be in other circumstances. This is more a question of, what is this, really? And for that, we we do have to retreat from the temptations of why, or the temptations of the replay of the images of the story. And I want to say to our listeners, when you said, what is this really, your hands went to your, your gut, uh-huh. so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were really saying, what is this really, it's the feeling of it, is yes. what, what you're indicating by the way your hands, yes. yeah. Well, emotions are, are located in our bodies. They aren't separate from our bodies. And 
we have learned as spiritual seekers that we're more than our bodies, but I don't know that we've always learned that or can even learn it about our emotions. They feel so primal. They feel deeper than our thoughts and our bodies. So say there is this emotion that's been evoked by some trigger that reminds me of something my mother did. Rather than following the story or reconstructing the story or fixing the story or analyzing the story, my attention just drops into where I am in this moment experiencing that emotion that is underneath the story. And I I am touching my gut now because it is often located in the gut or the chest or the throat or or someplace in the, the core of the body. And to suspend the story, of course, means to suspend judgment. It, it shouldn't be here. It's wrong that it's here. It means I'm not free or enlightened or happy. That's all just part of the narrative. And just to suspend that for a moment, a moment of inquiry, and actually meet with open consciousness this emotion or this feeling or this sensation, is that in itself is revolutionary. Because in that moment, the narrative, the link between the emotion and the narrative is weakened. But even more deeply and more to the point of this book and my teachings is in the willingness to experience that. We stop running in our, into our mind and the strategies of our mind to discover who we are. We actually stop our mind activity and experience what is here. And at first, as in this case, it may be quite uncomfortable. But in the willingness to experience that fully, there is discovered either the insubstantiality of the fear or that there is a deeper emotion. It could be sadness or grief or even despair. And in our willingness to use all of that as an inquiry into the depth of what is this? What is this really? And if our attention is there, we recognize finally, I mean, I'm giving it away here, but it is the treasure. We recognize the spaciousness of, of ourselves, our one self, our individual self, collective self, that is overflowing in joy of this recognition. And this treasure is always here. Now, if you hear the question, who am I, and you are aware of this treasure, I support that, and I often speak to people of that. This is uh, just a way that I have of working with people who have become very identified with themselves as emotional creatures, and they identify the emotion as real, rather than the emotion as really just a part of a story, the emotional story. We have emotional bodies, we have physical bodies, we have mental bodies, we have circumstantial bodies and global bodies, and and they all have their narratives. So in in going to, something triggers us, we go stop for a moment the narrative, we don't go into why or, or try and trip out on all that stuff that the mind just starts to attach to the story of it and feel the feelings. And you're saying, 
Now that's that's pretty good right there because yeah. that stops a kind of way of our running away then and starting to react to what whatever is triggering our husband or our, our boss or or the traffic around us or whatever it is. So that stops that. That's that's a good thing. But you're also saying that there is something underneath that. Yes. That's the entry point. That's an entry point, an entry point. And I, I know when you talk about, um, you, you challenge us with the thought that to, to look for that which never changes. And that was very powerful for me to, to think, oh, even our stories change. You know, we think that they're factual, but they, they change. Everything changes. And is there something that never changes? So what can you say about looking at that? Well, yes, this is what my teacher said to me, and it had such a profound effect on me, is continuing to have such a profound effect. He was re relating a story about meeting his teacher, Ramana, and when he met Ramana, he said, can you show me God? Because Papaji had had certain visions of Rama and Krishna and Sita, and, and he wanted them to last always, as I'm sure we all know we've had wonderful experiences, and we would like for them to last. But as experiences, they don't last. And he, he said, can you show me God? And Ramana said to him, gods that come and go are useless. Find out what doesn't come and go. And this stopped Papaji in his tracks. And he, he offered that to us. And when we really inquire, we recognize, yes, stories come and go. The, the physical story of each particular life has come and it will go. And emotions come and go. And thoughts come and go. Circumstances clearly come in, those states of mind come and go, evaluations of oneself come and go. But what is always present? And usually I use the word awareness because that's the truth. You can't even know a state is here unless there's awareness, or know that a story has appeared or disappeared unless there's awareness, or know that there's fear, or know that your mother did something that probably caused that fear. So awareness is always here, but, you know, we spoke of co-opting certain terms, and awareness has been co-opted by our minds. Usually when we use the word awareness in spiritual circles, it means a particular state of awareness. I'm not speaking of a state. And so uh, the other day at a conference I used the word life. I said life doesn't come and go. When this particular life form dies, life remains. It was here before this life form appeared. It is present when we are asleep and unaware of it. It's present when we are feeling good. It's present when we're feeling bad. It's present when we're aware of our awareness. It's present when we're unaware of our awareness. And this life can be conscious of itself in our willingness to, to discover it as always here. Mm. 
I would like to to have you talk to go back into some of your own story and one particular uh, story that I I really loved and related to somewhat was when you were a young person, uh, you were Episcopalian and you were in um, confirmation class and. I, I want you to talk about that a little bit because I think we can re- relate to that. But in just one moment, I just want to say for our listeners that we are here with Ganga G, spiritual teacher, and she is the author of Hidden Treasure, Uncovering the Truth of Your Life Story. If you'd like to be in touch with her, go to her website, gangaji.org. And Gangaji is G-A-N-G-A-J-I, Gangaji. Org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Gangaji, and we're talking about inquiry, and we were talking about, I, I'm asking you to relate a story when you were a young person going to confirmation classes in uh, an Episcopal church, and something happened for you in your inquiry. Well, it was an interesting time, because I had earlier had an experience of an overflowing love for what Christ meant, and I... It had suppressed that to some degree, but confirmation was a big deal to me. I, it seemed like I was making myself ready to to join the church as a as a person who could be there. And yet, I was also twelve years old and and curious and rambunctious, as were all of us. There were probably maybe ten of us in this class, and and we had questions that, to me, reflected the curiosity of our age and. And really, even more than that, the, what the confirmation was about was was really an inquiry. I mean, if you look at it, we were inquiring into the church and and what is it? And we asked this this priest, this Episcopal priest. Um, you know, I, I think I asked him, "What is the devil? Well, what is sin? What is?" And he got furious with us. I can see now he got furious because he had no idea where to go with those questions because he had never inquired into any depth. But he really, uh, he made us then start sitting in rows and he wouldn't allow any particular type question that was irrelevant. And of course to us these were totally relevant. But he, he saw our rambunctiousness and translated that as somehow trivializing this uh, instruction that he was there to give us about how to be good people, how to take communion, not uh, eating any food before you take communion. That's what was important to him. And it uh, something just went click with me. I realized I'm not going to get... Oh, I lost respect for him. And many of us in that class did. And Maybe that was just his particular lack of expertise and maturity, but I've heard similar stories to this from many people, many different backgrounds. In some ways, this he might be 
a wonderful catalyst mm -hmm. because you could have gone through that class and accepted um, his rendition and saying, okay, the, the, what's important is a ritual and, and not to question too deeply. And then gone on and been very, very happy mm -hmm. in your Episcopal robe <laughs> or dressing or hats and heels, whatever, <laughs> and, and, uh, and never gone out. But he was like the mother in Jack and the Beanstalk, and, and, and he threw those uh, seeds out the window, and then the beanstalk started growing, right. and the adventure, the spiritual adventure really began for you. That's so, that's such an astute uh, seeing of that, uh, and I've never really seen it quite like that, but I think it's really true. Had he been someone maybe that I respected more, or that I felt uh, overpowered by, but since I didn't feel it in him, I could follow the seeds that went out the window, and, and I did go out the window. But then it took you on a long route, and you had many, many um, reversals of fortune, so to speak. You use that term in, in your book. And um, you, you talk about suffering, suffering as needing a kind of narrative with heroes and villains and all of that. Say something about that. Well, I really make the distinction between pain emotional pain in this case, and suffering. Because we all know we can feel emotional pain, just the pure loss of, of what we love in grief or, or sadness or even hurt feelings. But in order for that to be incorporated, in, or in order for that to be made into, constructed into suffering, there has to be a narrative about what does this mean, this pain, and who did this to me. Again, it's in the gut. I'm sort of yeah. touching my gut. And, and it became uh, something that I practiced, and I think many people do in different ways. It was almost a, a religion, my particular suffering, and why it was legitimate, and, and whose fault it was, who was the trinity in my suffering. And, and I, I have seen this to be true of many people. And so I would never uh, invalidate the emotional pain that any of us feel, just as I wouldn't invalidate the stories that we tell. But often the suffering, which is the link of the stories and the pain, is unnecessary. In your own story, when you were six years old, your little sister was born. And so this was part of your formative story, and, and you were sent away. Can you talk about that story. It was a very powerful story. Well, it was a powerful time in my life, and, you know, in other circumstances, having a baby sister could be a wonderful thing, but for me, it was just a threat to the, the attention that I was getting, and, not, and also, by that time, not getting enough of. And at, soon after she was born, I was sent to this particular institution called a preventorium, which uh, in 1946 was uh, considered a place to send sickly kind of children so that they wouldn't get polio or TB. And, and I, from conversations I had with my parents later, they really felt they were doing the right thing. But to me, it was like I was banished from this home and this, I had been replaced by this adorable little baby. And and my mother was already getting a little tired of my dramatizations. At six, I was already a drama queen. And 
And so I felt, well, I was very angry that they had uh, pushed me out, and I was distraught to be in this institution with these other children and these little bloomers that we wore and slept in this dormitory with these iron beds and played in the sunshine and had lessons and had to eat our mashed potatoes and our green peas. And it was, to me, a hell realm. I felt I had been betrayed and lost, and it was the huge reversal of fortune and the loss of of what I little I felt I had. Because I, I wouldn't say I wasn't suffering before then, but it really uh, formulated myself as the victim of my parents' uh, neglect. And how did this story then complete? It just completes itself over and over and over in your life. You had many wonderful things happen, and then it would all kind of go away. And Yeah, and- things change. And so there was a resolution to this particular story where I had a, some inner peace and calm. And so that, in, in its way, this story of neglect became a catalyst for resolution and a, an inward search and I was, I did go back home, and I was, after only six months, and was able to be, play with my little sister and not want to kill her. But when I look back on my life, I could see then I would formulate a life, my story, as it should be. Everything would seem to be in place. And then some event would happen, event of life, such as when I went to college or when I recognized in my first marriage that actually I shouldn't be married to this particular man and we already had a child. and Or when I had many, many events that followed that. We, and that's what we do. We, we gather what works or we attempt to. And I was successful in gathering what I thought I needed for a better story. And always it was leaky because it wasn't the truth. It was only the truth as far as I could construct it. And I had cycle after cycle of replaying myself as being the victim of circumstances and then pulling myself up out of those circumstances. And And every time we do that, because that is all of our story, we think, oh, this time it's different. Don't we tell ourselves, oh, this one is different. Now I'm really working it out spiritually or whatever. I've got it now. Yeah, well, then at a certain point, I, I had to take responsibility for particular themes that kept recurring, and I realized it couldn't just be random, that I was actually... I remember in the 70s, we spoke, spoke a lot about creating our own reality. And that's what I was doing with my particular selecting of events and emotions and, and, and overlooking other events and emotions to put together a narrative. And it would, could be a good narrative or it could be a bad narrative, but it, it wasn't reality. And so it couldn't finally satisfy my yearning for reality. And uh, that's about the time that you were with Eli, your your present husband, and and you he went off to India, and he invited you. He came back to get you and said, "Oh, come with me and say something about meeting your teacher for the first time." It was extraordinary. When Eli was with him, he had been sending me letters back, and the letters were just. 
vibrating and filled with this overflowing love. And he's, this is the real thing. He's found the teacher. And so he did come back to California and got me in. We went there. And so I was prepared to meet a, a great presence. And when Papaji opened the door and said, Welcome, I was just flooded with this the possibility of here is my teacher. Because by then I was praying for a teacher who could could somehow break this pattern of the one you just said, how we do that. We think, well, this is it. I've got it together. This is different. And I recognized that it was out of my control. That I, didn't re- I didn't know how it would start. I would find myself in the middle of it. And you didn't feel like it would be a guru. I mean, in fact, you were feeling like, okay, gurus are not the way. And suddenly here you are finding yourself in India in this situation. Oh, it was perfect. You know, I was quite certain it wouldn't be a guru. <laughs> that, that didn't fit into my story at all. I was a product of feminism and liberation of women. And I had seen lots of gurus in the guru scene, and I was not interested in that. But he was a real teacher. And so my interest was more in a real teacher than what I thought that teacher should look like. Right. And I, I met him, and it changed my life, Justine. It's, he, he set me right side up. He pulled my head out of the sand of my story into the light of day. Is it really quite, uh, and I want to go into a little more detail about what, what he said to you uh, during those those early days and your time with him. Uh, I'm here with spiritual teacher Gangaji, and she's the author of many books, including Hidden Treasure, Uncovering the Truth of Your Life Story. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, gangaji.org. And she spells her name G-A-N-G-A-J-I, gangaji.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And I, I just want to mention a, a couple of other books that you've written. You've written um, uh, In My Pocket, Treasure. No. Uh, Diamond in My Pocket. Diamond, Diamond in My Pocket. And I am. You are, I am, you are that. You are that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes book you, Sure, you are that. And Diamond in My Pocket. Diamond in Your Pocket. Diamond in <laughs> Your Pocket. This is great. And uh, her new book, Hidden Treasure. Uncovering the Truth of Your Life Story. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with spiritual teacher Gangaji, and we're talking about those first months that you met your spiritual teacher, Papaji. And um, what advice did he give you that really stopped you? That very simple advice, and yet not so simple. What, what was that? Well, he told me to stop searching. Uh, and this was shocking to me. I thought he was going to give me a new practice or, or a new mantra or a new prayer. And he said, stop searching. Just, just be still. Be here. It uh, triggered a lot of fear for me. And in the recognition of that fear, I saw how so much of my activity had been searching for some way out of myself. And as we've been speaking that meant constructing a new story, changing my old story, finding what was wrong with the old story, and making sure that didn't happen in my new story. And, and he was saying, stop. When I really allowed that word in, stop, I, I could recognize the, the activity of my mind was veiling the, the peace and the fulfillment that I was actually searching for in the activity of my mind. In some ways, when it, someone tells us to uh, keep still, you know, uh, uh, it's we think of that as when we are a little child, and we want to rebel against it, you know, because we're saying, "All right, be be seen, not heard," you know, quiet down, you know, cool it, wh- yeah. whatever words we're using now for kids, but but. This so was there any sense of rebellion in you at all when you keep still? Okay, wait a minute. That that. Well, you know, it 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 reminds me of the confirmation class. That's basically what the uh, the confirmation teacher was saying: be quiet. And and so rebellion was necessary, and I think it is necessary in most lives. There is a sense of of rebelling to discover self-expression or individuation or, or to discover what is my story, what is, what is my place in this world. But by the time I got to Papaji, I had been through so many versions of my story and I had rebelled and I had resisted and I, I honored that rebellion and that resistance. But I had also recognized that that in itself had become a loop. And it was, I was still on this sort of you know, like a a guinea pig cage yeah, loop, yeah. and rebellion was a part of it. I had changed lifestyles. I had left a husband. I had left a profession, and I, you know, I had done so much that I was ready to really at least investigate what this teacher was saying. And he said it with a degree of authority and depth and confidence that I knew I could. There was something for me here. You know, if, if maybe other teachers had said that and I hadn't received it, maybe it was a timing. For me, it was his grace and, and the recognition that he was really offering that to me for my own self, not for his comfort, but, right. but in reply to my question of how do I find freedom? How do I find the truth? We are such a culture of, I will call us, uh, spiritual dilettantes, mm. you know, that we we 
flip. I mean, there's so much available right now. So, so many books, so many teachers, so many go on the internet and you can hear the voices of master teachers and, and get all sorts of information. And, and each one feels really exciting. And, and we get, oh, so what do you have to say about how do we go down and find the, the one path that's for us, that, that's going to lead us to the kind of freedom that you're talking about. What's your advice for us? Well, I, I, it's a very sober question. And there has to be maybe enough experience of tasting in the marketplace. I think Trungpa is the one who used the phrase spiritual materialism, of consuming, of rebelling, whatever it may be, where we recognize that that has its place, but it doesn't deliver a depth that we are searching for, uh, that requires a very sober commitment. So while my meeting with my teacher was joyous and often playful, there was a, a deep seriousness in it, because I knew that, that I had reached a dead end in terms of my own ability to do it, and I was here to receive. And so my mind was humbled, and I th- I know from speaking to people that it's not necessarily a, a biological age where that happens. It's just a recognition of the futility of repeating the same themes over and over, and a desire, a deep desire, a yearning to be free, to know the truth. I mean, however we phrase it, it could be phrased in millions of different ways. But it is a call from the deepest part of ourselves that finally is bigger than what we know. And in that, the, I was available to go to India, even though I never thought I would go to India. But I, I was humbled by my own successes, that they hadn't delivered what I thought my successes would deliver, and humbled by my own failures, because it showed that I was not in control the way I thought I was in control. And so I recognized there was something bigger than what I knew. And I also knew by that time to pay very close attention that it is a precious experience, this experience of life, and can be taken from us at any moment. And mostly we squander it. And so I was very concerned. When I met my teacher, I was 48. So I had been through some life experiences, although there were many people there with him much younger, and they were at the same place. So again, it's not a chronological age, but it is, it's a mystery. But when you are ready, you are willing to stop where you are. And if that means extreme discomfort or boredom or retreat from the marketplace, and there, there's a willingness to to bear that and to open to that for the deepest discovery. When you um, had this, you you said in, in your book, you say, my moment of awakening was not the rescue or a kind of treasure I was looking for. You said, it did not bestow magic powers or protection from pain. And that's very significant because we think, okay, once we've, we've found this and when this is like we've, we've experienced this freedom and this awakening or, or life connection with all of life, whatever you want to call it, uh, 
that now we're going to be freed up from all the defeats in life. But you say that may not be the case. (laughs) Well, what is freed up is the reference point to ourselves as that which can be bound by pain. So it doesn't mean that I am no longer a human being. It just means that the truth of myself is bigger than this human being. It doesn't mean that you will never experience uh, grief or anger or fear, but it means that there's room for that, that that grief or anger or fear or human beingness doesn't define you, and that the stories that appear in your life don't define you. They're there as a reflection of you and as an aspect of you, but you are free of them. You You are the treasure that's underneath all of them. So you can kind of treat these stories to have a kind of, I think, and I think you've used this word in your book, in your teachings, a a kind of curiosity about it rather than getting attached to the emotion or the need to control it or push it away or hold it, even if it's a good thing. We want to hold it if it's a good thing. Yes, well, some very strong uh, emotions are evoked. Life is strong and strong events. I mean, and and we are all aware that eventually we will lose this life form. And and that's a pretty horrific knowledge to have. and, And that can evoke extreme fear. So it's not the the fear or the the grief or the the bigness that's evoked. It's our capacity that is limitless that we get to discover as we are willing to experience directly whatever is evoked without needing to tell a story of control or a story of blame. That may be a part of it, but we don't get fixated on the story. We can actually discover ourselves to, to be able to bear it all. I mean, we are bearing it all. It's all in our consciousness. So, Gangaji, what is the question we might ask ourselves as we become aware, let's say we're feeling something, some emotion in our gut, and, and we're going to start to ride off with that story but we become aware of the story. What What is the question that can help us in that moment to to kind of get feel that bigness and that connection with all life and beyond the story? Well, I think the question that has to come before that moment is the question that you ask yourself about what do I want? Because many times we just want to escape the emotion. And that's I'm not saying that's illegitimate. You know, you're free to escape the emotion or escape the event. It may be appropriate to. But if what you want is to discover what is always here, then you can ask yourself, what is here? And what may be here is a feeling of contraction or pain, an emotion of sadness, and you continue. What is here? What is also here? What is here under that? What is here under that? And that invites your attention deeper inside. Finally, so deeply inside that we lose the distinction in inside and outside. Gangaji, thank you so much for being with us today. My joy. I've been here with a spiritual teacher, Gangaji, and she's the author of Hidden Treasure, Uncovering the Truth 
in your life story. If you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, gangaji.org, and she spells it G-A-N-G-A-J-I.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3415. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.